Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 1st, 2022, a new month in a new year, or at least it seems like a new year. And it may be that a new world is emerging, a world which is quite different from the world of the 20th century, the traditional Cold War world. Uh, Vladimir Putin today accused the United States of goading Russia into starting a conflict in the Ukraine. Uh, Putin is a master politician. And there's something perhaps quite credible about what he's saying. Meanwhile, the uh, the Republican Party seems to be changing its spots, if it ever had spots, on Russia, led by Tucker Carlson, the Fox News presenter, and perhaps uh, the most uh, talented figure in the Fox News world. Uh, Carlson is in- increasingly making it clear that he is not an opponent, an enemy of Putin's kind of politics. Um, And Fox News is indeed abandoning the GOP on Russia, at least according uh, to the Atlantic. Um, Carlson's become obsessed uh, with Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary, the uh, self-styled illiberal Democrat, the illiberal leader of perhaps the pioneer of illiberalism, not just in Europe and in the world. And it's no surprise that um, Orban, uh, Hungary's leader, according to the New York Times, um, is in Moscow, I think, right now, suggesting that Russian demands are actually quite reasonable. So what we might be seeing is the division of the world in the early part of the 21st century into a liberal and an illiberal camp, that illiberal clamp, of course, would include our old friend Donald Trump, who continues to make news in his own rather incoherent and shrill way. It would also include, I think, the Chinese. And it's no surprise that the the illiberal pincer movement against America of the Chinese in Taiwan and the Russians in Ukraine, there's nothing coincidental about this. Uh, This rise of illiberalism is, of course, quite troubling for liberals like myself. And I have an interesting author on the show today. He has a new book out, Thomas J. Maine, The Rise of Illiberalism. It's a Brookings Institute book. And uh, Thomas, um, who is also a professor of political science, has become one of the more articulate um, explainers and theorists of illiberalism. I'm thrilled that Thomas is joining us from Jersey City, Thomas, right? Yes, indeed. Thank you very much for having me on. Is that an illiberal place, Tom? By, by no means. It, uh, well, the, in the old days, you go back to when it was run by a machine by Boss Haig. It wasn't exactly a model of democracy. Uh, but now it's, uh, it's very diverse. It's a growing city. As I mentioned to you, the Pompidou Center from Paris is actually opening up an extension in Jersey City. So uh, we're a pretty uh, pluralistic, uh, liberal environment these days. Thomas, what do you make of my introduction, this idea that 
illiberalism, and this is a word you've given as much thought to as anyone, you just have okay. this new book out, The Rise of Illiberalism. Illiberalism has become, if anything, a kind of international movement. Another figure, of course, very much associated with it is Steve Bannon, um, uh, what you might think of as a, a, a national internationalist of illiberalism, trying to create an international yeah. network. Is there some truth to this world of Putin and Bannon and Orban um, and Tucker Carlson yeah. that perhaps not consciously, but together they are developing um, and articulating uh, uh, a theory of illiberalism? Well, uh, I focus entirely on domestic politics and uh, can't really say much about international politics, about uh, Russia and Orban and such. But I, I would say this. In the United States, uh, you, you do see uh, developing uh, a kind of a counter or lumpen intelligentsia, an illiberal um, elite, which is uh, developing... Uh, well, Thomas, not, to call them lumpen intelligentsia so is is a little, and, and I'm a self-styled elitist, so I don't necessarily mean this as a criticism. Oh yeah, but they're well, no more or less lumpen than anyone else. They they uh, have the right I, to articulate. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I have to beg to differ. Uh, when I uh, see um, people like uh, the editor of Occidental Descent uh, uh, publishing articles where he says, uh, "Let's celebrate Happy John Wilkes Booth Day." The Avenger of the South against the tyrant Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, I'd say that's lumpen intellectualism. What well, what does that mean, lumpen intellectualism? It's a what sort it means of a marked uh, popularized term of, of the I'll lumpen proletariat. But what does it mean? It, I'll tell you what it means. Um, it means that uh, you have um, an elite group, okay, uh, which I don't use as an honorific, okay. It's simply a relatively small group of people of, we might say, thought leaders who have um, a certain amount of influence over larger groups. And um, all political ideologies uh, have uh, an elite group and have uh, uh, an intelligentsia uh, that develops uh, those uh, ideologies in some detail. And that thinking uh, spreads out and uh, trickles down to broader and broader audiences. And that's, as I say, is true of all sorts of uh, ideologies, socialism, liberalism, conservatism, what you will. And uh, there is in uh, the United States uh, a, a set of people, um, uh, editors, uh, thought leaders that have a set of uh, illiberal outlets, and uh, they make arguments uh, uh, against uh, liberal democracy, okay? So in that sense, they're uh, intellectuals. They deal in abstract ideas. Uh, I find the arguments uh, are um, um, strikingly uh, radical and generally not uh, terribly well argued. So, for instance, you can actually go to these illiberal websites and you will see, uh, uh, see things like, um, again, I'm, I'm thinking of one particular website, uh, that uses the uh, writings of George Fitzhugh, who was the famous uh, defender of American slavery. And uh, this uh, website I have in mind explicitly uses George Fitzhugh's arguments 
argues yeah, that the, and here we have an image of Fitzhugh, the uh, yes. 19th century American defender of slavery and of yes. eugenics. Yes. Uh, but uh, so, um, so uh, let me just explain. Uh, when when you see someone reaching for these extreme and uh, discredited and radically illiberal uh, um, um, thought systems like George Fitzhugh's uh, defense of slavery and trying to apply them uh, in a modern context, uh, I, you know, I don't use the term very often, and I won't use it anymore. But yeah, I, I I'm not. I have to admit, I'm not convinced. I and I and I don't know the answer to this, but. My guess is that Steve Bannon, um, Tucker Carlson, yeah. uh, maybe even um, Peter Thiel. We, we had Max Chafkin on the show talking about his biography of Thiel. I'm not sure any of them would would necessarily uh, be defined as a as a lumpen intelligentsia. And I think that some no, of them. I was referring be- to them. I was I was referring to the to the theorists. Who who uh, channel uh, things like George Fitzhugh, things like Carl um, um, Schmitt, uh, the Nazi. Well, but Schmitt, Schmitt is a highly sophisticated political thinker. I mean, my point is That's not whether correct. or not they're right. Um, and and Schmitt is actually back in back in um, yeah back in fashion, even That's on right. the left as well as the right. Yeah, my point right. is simply that what you call illiberalism, I think, is is not just. Um, is not just the sort of craziness of a, of an internet underclass. It's actually becoming increasingly mainstream, and as I suggested in the beginning, articulated by uh, by Putin and by Orban and perhaps by Trump. Let's get on, Thomas, okay, well, hold, to defining what illiberalism means. And okay, I'm quoting you your right book. Now. Let me do uh, that. Right you, you you talk about the main principles of liberal democracy being political egalitarianism, human rights, limited government electoral democracy, the legitimacy of change and revolution, yes. the rule of law and tolerance. Yes. Are you suggesting then that illiberalism is the reverse of that? So if yes. we were to go through that, um, political inequality, a lack of respect for human rights, uh, absolute government, uh, disinterest in electoral democracy, uh, absence of the rule of law, because... Putin and Orban are kind of ambivalent on some of this, but they certainly fall into that category. Yes. Again, I, I, I can't say much about Putin and Orban because through my career, I, I studied uh, domestic American politics. Well, you need However, to, you you need to think more, more internationally. It's not good enough just to say you're only interested in America because this is affecting the world. Well, uh, I, I have to confess that uh, my... Uh, my uh, uh, academic uh, focus has uh, been on domestic politics. I think that's... No, I accept that. And I think your work is good, but uh, there are much broader and perhaps more important ramifications. You can't be an American firster here and only see... um, American firster is a term that is used to refer to isolationists and uh, uh, neo-Nazis. I'm not an American firster. I believe in a foreign policy that uh, engages with the world. I'm simply saying my academic expertise is in domestic politics. Good, good, And good, so good. what I would say is that illiberalism, as I understand it, is any ideology that explicitly rejects one or more of the features of liberal democracy as they were adumbrated uh, by 
uh, Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. And of course, they've been developed into some detail uh, in the uh, in the decades uh, since then. But yes, illiberalism is the explicit rejection of one or another of those elements that you simply that you recently read off. How would you explain this rise? I mean, in, in socioeconomic terms, there's been a huge amount of work done on this. We had Anne Applebaum, for example, on the show um, talking about the growth of illiberalism around the world from Hungary to yes. Poland to Russia to China to the United States. What's your explanation for the growth, the rise yes. of illiberalism? Why is it happening? Okay. I, I think... Uh, in the United States, at least, you had a situation where in the post-war years, there always was uh, on the left, uh, excuse me, on the right, uh, a sort of um, uh, what was used to be called right-wing extremism, which is, was to the right of the National Review, which tried with some success, anyhow, to fashion uh, a respectable uh, pro-democracy um, uh, uh, a form of conservatism. And that uh, right-wing extremism uh, was, was basically marginalized throughout most of the latter half of the 20th century. Didn't get very far, but it hung on as a splinter or fringe group. Things changed in the, uh, with the turn of the millennium, and you had a series of shocks to the American political system like 9-11, uh, like the Great Recession, uh, like the uh, fiscal meltdown of 2008, like uh, visible um, uh, demographic change, and like, for some people, the shock of the election of uh, an African-American president. So the political status quo, and especially the status quo on the right, was shaken up as a result of these, uh, of these uh, traumas. Simultaneously, what happens is you have the development of uh, a digital media. And the key thing about digital media, like uh, the internet and Twitter and so forth, one of the most important things about it is, uh, unlike the capital-intensive uh, media uh, of uh, the 20th century, which things like magazines, television stations, radio stations, okay, to start a magazine even was expensive. All right. And if you got blocked from uh, the uh, mainstream conservative magazine like the National Review, uh, you were basically frozen out unless you could put together the resources to start your own magazine, which was difficult for these fringe groups. With the rise of digital media, all of a sudden, cheap and easy access to uh, mass audiences becomes available to the um, right-wing extremists who uh, take advantage of the shakeup in uh, the American uh, uh, ideological system, which um, made it look like uh, things were not working out so well for the old ideas, especially the old ideas about what conservatism was. was. And so you see the emergence of uh, these um, right-wing extremists who now christen themselves the alt-right or the alternative. Thomas, yeah, and we, we've had a number of shows on this. Um, how mainstream has this become? How core is a liberalism to conservatism? We had a wonderful show recently, actually it was not so recently, a couple of years ago, 
with the great intellectual historian Edmund Fawcett. He used to be the economist correspondent in the United States. He's written two wonderful books, Conservatism and Liberalism. And this is a quote that from his book that I repeat endlessly on this show. He wrote, were politics chess, liberals had white, they moved first. Conservatives had black, they countered liberalism's opening moves. In time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives who began as anti-moderns came to master modernity. For the right was in telling ways the stronger contestant. To what extent is this illiberalism now on the right um, a way of winning the chess game in the early 21st century. How mainstream has it become? Well, t- it has become uh, more mainstream than you might imagine. One of the things I did in my book was analyze audiences for political websites across the full range of the ideological spectrum, from the extreme or illiberal left, which is like communism, Leninism, and so forth, all the way through the mainstream ideological categories of the mainstream left, the center, the mainstream right, and then onto the far right, which is the illiberal right. So if you do this and and you look at uh, websites, political websites, for the first 11 months of 2019, which is what I did, uh, you discover that um, illiberal websites, by which I mean uh, neo-Nazi websites, uh, Ku Klux Klan websites, alt-light and alt-right websites and so forth. Uh, those sorts of websites received on monthly average about 186 million visits on average a month. Now, is that a lot or a little? Well, that's about uh, 31% the size of the audience for mainstream conservative sites. It's about 19% the size of the audience for mainstream uh Right, and, that, and, and that's why you, uh, in an interesting recent piece, actually coming out uh, today, uh, that's why you suggest that the the right, the, the liberal factions on the right, are much more dangerous um, yes. than the ones um, on the left. Uh, yeah. And and I think, as you're suggesting, this is increasingly, as you suggest, in the rise of illiberalism, this is increasingly becoming mainstream, which is very troubling. I am talking with Thomas J. Main, the author of The Rise of Illiberalism, a Brookings uh, Institute book that's just out. Um, uh, we're going to take a short break, Thomas. And then after the break, I want to talk about fighting illiberalism, what you think are the best okay. strategies. So hold on tight, everyone. And we'll be back in about a minute. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. 
if you're into watching this as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Thomas J. Main, the author of a very troubling and important, I think, new study, a Brookings Institute book, The Rise of Illiberalism. It's just out. It's warning us about how mainstream conservative illiberalism, the illiberalism of the right, has become, and perhaps it's becoming the dominant form of conservatism. Uh, Thomas, what are we going to do about it? How do we we as liberals, I'm certainly a liberal, and, and I know you are, how are we going to fight it? What's the best strategy yes. for confronting it? Well, look, besides uh, um, speaking out as we are now about uh, the illiberal threat, I think we need um, a reform, a, a pretty thoroughgoing reform of American political institutions. I mean, I, I there was an excellent book written by Peter Shuck uh, not too long ago called um, uh, Why Government Fails So Often. And he argues that the main reason people are uh, alienated and angry at American government is because, in fact, it doesn't function very effectively. And I think there's something to that. And I think uh, we, we need, um, ultimately, uh, constitutional reform. I think we have a constitution that's very fragmenting, uh, that uh, deliberately uh, impedes uh, effective uh, government action. And um, uh, there, you know, there Is are. Is that going to uh, happen, though, Thomas? We had um, Michael Waldman on the show from the Brennan Center, the New York University Associated Brennan Center. His uh, book, Fight to Vote, he has a new volume, an, an updated volume, a wonderful, important book. He talks about constitutional reform, but yes. how realistic is that? I mean, nothing can get done, especially in Joe Biden's America. And we yeah. know that politics is going to change dramatically in America after the elections in November. So is that really realistic? Well, I, I think, listen, you have to be realistic about constitutional reform. It's, it's a heavy lift. There's no question about it. I mean, if there was one piece of reform of the Constitution that you could you could realize with a snap of a finger, what would it be? Changing the Electoral College? Well, you know, that's a that's a perennial. And 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 certainly I would I would favor that. But let me let me let me suggest another um, reform, which is uh, 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 not a reform that I think is going to happen immediately, but it's a very illuminating reform because I think it gives a sense as to what the problem is with the American uh, political and constitutional system. There's a very interesting book um, called Relic um, that was uh, published 
by um, uh, uh, John, uh, 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 John Moe uh, and his uh, co-author, William Howland. And he argued that um, what ought to happen is the president ought to be given the power to submit directly to Congress a unified, a complete package, domestic um, legislative package, and that the uh, the uh, Congress ought to be required to vote that package up or down without any uh, amendments, okay, as a whole. And the idea here is that that would increase that would increase strengthen the president's hand. I, I think actually our president is much weaker than, for example, the uh, prime minister is in a parliamentary system. And that's a problem because it, it oftentimes turns out that uh, dramatic change is extremely difficult. And when it happens, as for example, with Obamacare, uh, you end up with a jerry-built sort of system that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the president's uh, proposal is amended and uh, so many interest groups are satisfied that the initial uh, reform impulse ends up being uh, uh, lost. And so I think we, we need a various uh, uh, constitutional reforms that would give the president a stronger hand, make him a little bit more like uh, the prime minister in a parliamentary system. Not, I'm, not, I'm not in favor of abandoning the presidential system, but I would like to see the president's hand vis-a-vis the legislature strengthened for the sake of uh, making coherent change more possible. It's an ironic argument in, in terms of confronting a liberalism, making the institution of president of the president more powerful or, or more effective. I'm not sure everyone would agree. What about on the intellectual front, Thomas? We yeah. had um, the British historian Jeffrey Wheatcroft on the show last week talking about his book about Winston Churchill, The Churchill Shadow. It's quite a critical book on Churchill, but he does acknowledge that Churchill had a genius for narrative, for telling a story about the value of democracy, particularly in the dark days of 1940 and 41. Do we need a Churchill now in the ranks of liberalism? We we don't seem to have anyone able to articulate the value of liberalism in the way in which perhaps an Orban or a Trump or a Bannon or even yes. a Tucker Carlson can argue the case for illiberalism. Yes. Well, I would like to say, I don't know if we need any one particular person like a Churchill, who was an extraordinary world historical figure. Uh, but I do think our intellectual class could do a better job of making the case for liberal democracy. And uh, I think, uh, for, for example, I, I, it seems to me that demographic change has um, uh, created a lot of anxiety in the American working class, amongst American uh, Republicans, amongst white people, and so forth. Okay? Uh, and uh, I think these demographic changes and the relative empowerment of new groups like Hispanics and Blacks and women who are not really a new group, but maybe they're newly, relatively newly empowered. Well, how are Blacks new group? Why, why are they well, a new group? Newly empowered. Newly oh, empowered see. in the sense of it, it was only really since 1968 that bl- Blacks had uh, full voting rights. So relatively new is what is the point I'm making. So the point is this. 
the the rising empowerment of these relatively uh, newly prominent groups creates anxiety. And I think what American intellectuals need to do is to focus on uh, what has been identified as the American identity. You know, there's been empirical work done, especially by uh, a sociologist at Tufts called Schildkraut. She found that there is a set of ideas, political ideas, that are almost universally accepted uh, by Americans. These are the, the ideas of uh, liberal political values, right? Of civic republicanism, which is being active in your community, of incorporationism, which is the idea of assimilating many different groups. And unfortunately, there is an element of um, ethnoculturalism, aka racism, that many Americans believe in. The point is this what I would like to see the intellectual class do is try to explain, interpret the rise of these new groups as something that is consistent with, that is a part of right, the American identity. Inst instead of, 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 of people feeling fear about the, uh, right, the demographic change and the uh, shift in power amongst demographic groups, I think it's important for American intellectuals to point out, hey, you know, we all, the, the idea that America has been sort of knitted together out of many different groups, that's incorporationism, we can all believe in that, right? And this and the, and the rise of these new groups is just an example of that, which is not so very dissimilar from the rise of the immigrant groups that took place uh, in the early 20th and mid 20th uh, century. So it's ironic in a way that illiberalism now seems to become, to be an, an internationalist movement driven by people like Bannon and, uh, mm -hmm. and Trump and Orban, ironically, and you're suggesting that liberalism needs to be more nationalist. Uh, that would be a tremendous irony. Finally, let's just move on to, 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 to the final point. Um, as I said, you, you had an important piece written, uh, published today in The Bulwark about why we should be more fearful of illiberalism on the right than on the left. Uh, many people support you. Uh, Jonathan Rauch and Peter yes. Weiner had a piece um, in the New York Times last week, which, uh, yes. which is in full agreement with you. What about liberal critics on the left? Uh, New Yorker, for example, has a, a piece on the the black scholar Adolf Reed, um, who opposes the politics of anti-racism, according to The New Yorker, describing it as a cover for capitalism. I know you're less worried about illiberalism on the left, but um, is it conceivable, as in the 1930s, that you could have a kind of informal alliance of right and left illiberalism against liberals? Hmm. Well... I, I would I'd be inclined to say no, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Uh, if you define illiberalism as being a political ideology, any political ideology that rejects the essential principles of liberal democracy, well, then there certainly is a, a right-wing illiberalism that we've been talking about, and there is certainly, what we haven't talked about so far, a left-wing uh, illiberalism. That would be all forms of communism, Many forms of Marxism, anarchism, and so forth. I mean, it's 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 led it's our old friend Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, and of course Mao. And yes, ironically, I think the forces of illiberalism on the right seem to be using both and and you've argued this 
seem to be using Leninist and Maoist strategies in terms of seizing power and fetishizing oh, yes, power. There's, there, there, there's something to be said to that. You know, there is a report, uh, not entirely confirmed, that on, on one occasion, uh, Bannon uh, 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 boasted of being a Leninist. Um, he is. Eva. The, the only difference I would say between um, Bannon and uh, Lenin, not Lenin, Lenin, is that Bannon has more hair. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, if, if he really wanted to be like Lenin, he would he would cut his hair. But even yeah, but, Steve, Steve Bannon seems to have a little bit of the pop star about him. But let me let, let me make a point. If we if we dis, if we define illiberalism in those terms, okay, Leninism, Maoism, and so forth, if you go and you look at uh, web audiences as I have, okay, uh, you and you look for um, left illiberal sites, communist sites, anarchist sites, and so forth, they have a minuscule audience compared to the audience of other political ideologies. About uh, they get about two point five million. Uh, visits on average a month. That's about 1.3% the size of the um, right-wing illiberal audience. Yeah, because so, they're boring, uh, I think. There's no humor or color there. They seem to find themselves boring because also the, the left-wing illiberal sites, their audiences are less engaged. The, yeah. their, their visitors visit them much less often than any other political ideology. Right. So just as the, the, the liberals need a Winston Churchill, so the left does as well. Well, Maybe. it seems as if Thomas, the, certainly in terms of this uh, chess game, this endless chess game between right and left, uh, it's the conservatives or the illiberals who are winning. Hmm. It's a game that's going to go on. It's going to define the 21st century. And I think uh, I'm thrilled that you have um brought your wit and knowledge and erudition and uh, writing skills to this conversation your new book the rise of illiberalism is an interesting read congratulations what else should people be reading um at the beginning of february 2022 thomas in addition to your book well i i mentioned uh, peter shuck's book on why government fails so often right it's uh it's a, a, a tough read but i think it's it's accurate uh, I mentioned um, uh, Relic by Howell and uh, Chubb uh, that uh, suggests various interesting uh, I, um, uh, constitutional um, reforms. And my favorite book on uh, domestic American politics, which is where I'm stuck. I'm sorry. That's, that's what I've been studying. My favorite book, uh, James Q. Wilson's book, Bureaucracy, What Government Agencies Do and Why They Do It was written back in 1989. I was privileged to be a student of Wilson's. Uh, the book is still a classic, the best one volume account of how American government works. Well, Thomas, it's not too late. Maybe your next book after um, the rise of a liberalism that focuses on the rise of a liberalism in America is to study it as an internationalist movement. I think that actually is probably more important than in the US context, but it's nonetheless important in the US too. Congratulations, Thomas, on the book. Thank you. We'll have you back on the show to talk more about this subject of the way in which conservatism seems in some ways to have become hijacked by illiberalism. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.